And now, if you would, open your Bibles with me to Micah chapter 7. This week, we are going to finish this wonderful little book of Micah as we progress through the minor prophets. I want to thank Walter once again for filling in for me last week. Now, I don't know how many guys there are who go back-to-back weeks from preaching to the accordion. My guess is that I could count them on like one hand, maybe. But how cool is it that we have one of those guys in the body here? So thank you, Walter, for filling in faithfully, for opening God's Word. I hope that you express your gratitude to him for all the work that he puts in and for the multi-talented individual, again, that God has placed in our body. And this week, like I said, we're going to close this wonderful little book. Uh, And this chapter, Micah chapter 7, has one continual theme all the way through, and it is the theme of hope. And I love that theme uh, because the Christian life ought to be one of undying, unapologetic, unfazed hope. Hope that is not based on circumstances or people or hardship or victory, but hope that is based on the person and the work of Jesus Christ and the very nature of God. Uh, Our theology matters. So often we treat our theology like this academic exercise. Um, Some of us picked it up and studied it to death in seminary, and it's this checklist that we know in our head. Some of us have been in church for so long that it's just a list of stories that we know. Some of us uh, kind of pick up the Bible and dust it off when we get intellectually curious, and theology just becomes this kind of subset of knowledge that goes along with our fading knowledge of high school Spanish and our accounting and our whatever work practices are. It's just another segment of things that we know. Theology is not that. It cannot be that. True theology is deeply impactful in day-to-day life. Otherwise, you don't actually understand theology. And as we come to Micah 7, what we have is this theology of hope drawn out of the suffering of the prophet. What we're going to see is that a knowledge of God, a true understanding of who God is and what he is like, is what gives hope in hopeless times. I'm going to read the first few verses to set the stage for where we're going, and then we'll open up this chapter together. Micah chapter 7, beginning in verse 1, this is what God's Word says. Woe is me! I've become as when the summer fruit has been gathered, when the grapes have been gleaned. There's no cluster to eat, no first ripe fig that my soul desires. The godly has perished from the earth. There's no one upright among mankind. They all lie in wait for blood, and each hunts the other with a net. Their hands are on what is evil to do it well. The prince and the judge ask for a bribe. The great man utters the evil desire of his soul. Thus they weave it together. The best of them is like a briar, the most upright like a thorn hedge. The day of your watchman of your punishment has come, and now their confusion is at hand. Let's pray. Lord, it doesn't take much imagination to see that uh, we're reading about a prophet in distress. And Lord, it doesn't take much thinking to uh, place ourselves in his position. So often we're a people in distress from any number of sources, for any number of reasons, with any number of responses. Lord, we recognize that we are a people that are easily distressed. So Lord, we ask today that in your grace and in your mercy, you would speak to us through your word, that you would open our eyes to behold wonderful things from your word. Uh, that you would clear away the darkness, that you would penetrate our sinful stubbornness, and that you, through the power of your Spirit, would bring clarity. And Lord, we would ask further that you would give us not only the desire and the will, but the power to obey you, to walk in a manner worthy of our calling. And once again, we acknowledge that from the beginning to the end of that process, from understanding to application, we are solely dependent on you. 
So Lord, we ask that you would do the work that only you can do in our hearts and our minds and in our actions. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. I don't know if you heard, but there's a storm coming. Uh, the severity is debatable. But the fact is that a storm is coming. And in thinking about the storm that is coming, many people begin to brace themselves. They begin to prepare. And of course, that's only for a physical storm. I think we could probably very easily say there's a storm coming and we have no idea what it is. But in our lives, we know that it is only a matter of time before the next storm comes. Before the wind and the waves of doubt, of anxiety, of opposition, of hatred, of pain, of sickness, of whatever it is, some storm is coming on our lives. And as we look at the world around us, we live in a world that has that understanding that storms come, but the world around us lives with this prevailing sense of hopelessness. Study after study, depression, anxiety, at a younger and a younger age, is creeping into our human consciousness. Whether it's from the fact that we spend most of our lives glued to a device that measures our worth by how we're viewed in the eyes of other people, or whether it's because we're bombarded by news for 24 hours a day, seven days a week, and 90% of that is doom and gloom and failure and corruption, or most likely, and most biblically certainly, because we live in a fallen time and a fallen place as fallen people, we live in a hopeless time. And sadly, we live in an American culture and even in a church culture where the ability to process difficulty with a biblical worldview, to respond to hardship with a God-honoring attitude, action, and response, it's almost a foreign thing to us. The world offers its solutions. And if we're not careful, we get swept away in the expectation that those are the only solutions. But the best that the world can do is to say, avoid the painful situations, or change your circumstances to minimize the pain. But God's Word does something different. See, what God's Word does is it gives us real hope, not trite bumper sticker answers. That's not what I'm talking about, not slogans that you put on a t-shirt, but real hope, hope that is based on knowledge that radically transforms our mind that genuinely changes our heart and then that drives a different set of actions. It's truths based on who God is. And then it's these truths that work into changing our mind that then change our response to the things that we suffer through. And the first thing that we're going to see, well, in this chapter, we're basically going to work through three of these truths. And as a spoiler, none of them are going to be a surprise to you. Typically, they're on banners right behind me. You say, oh good, another sermon on God's sovereignty and holiness and justice and mercy. Yes, that is exactly what it is. Because when Micah is pressed and when Micah is crushed, those are the truths that come out. And when you and I are pressed and crushed by our circumstances, by opposition, by pain, that ought to be what comes out of us. And so we're going to look at those wonderful truths that actually provide hope in hopeless times. And the first truth that we're going to see is that the Lord is sovereign, typically on a banner right over there. You can imagine it. You remember, the, the colorful ones. 
Look at verse 1. Woe is me, for I have become as when summer fruit has been gathered, and when the grapes have been gleaned, there is no cluster to eat, no first ripe fig that my soul desires. We're going to open chapter 7 by looking at the trouble. This is a prophet in trouble. It is a prophet in distress. He gives us this picture of being completely worn out. I'm like when the fruit has been all the way taken out of the field and there's nothing left. There's no grape, there's no fig, anything good, anything of value, anything desirable has been completely picked over. Now, I'm pretty sure that most of us can relate to that feeling. Have you not gone through a time in your life when you come to the place where you feel like there's simply nothing left? Where anything good, anything of value, anything of strength, anything of lasting uh, encouragement has been picked up, drawn out, and used up a long, long time ago. That's where the prophet's at. And immediately, that should give you an overwhelming sense of comfort. You say, why is that? Because God's word doesn't shy away from things like that. You understand that this is not a fairy tale book where everything is all good all the time. God's word does not pretend that if you do what is right, things are always rosy, always happy, and always sunshine and roses. The Bible is infinitely clear that there are times when God's people, even in their most obedient and their most faithful actions, will suffer. Micah was obedient to his calling. Micah was a faithful guy. We know that through Micah's preaching, eventually there is change, right? We look back at Israel's history and we say, wow, eventually in his preaching uh, under Hezekiah as the king, there was change. There was a big shift in the nation. There's a religious kind of revival. There's a revival of right worship and obedience, and God sustains and pardons the nation for 100 years. And we say, Micah must have been incredibly encouraged by that. Understand, that did not happen after a day. That was years Hezekiah was the third king that he ministered under, and the second one, in between those first and the third kings, was a wicked man. For years and years, Micah preached in opposition to the powers and the rulers and the judges and the people at large, and that is an incredibly lonely place. Look at what's making Micah so distraught. Verse 2, the godly has perished from the earth, and there is no one upright among mankind. They all lie in wait for blood, and each one hunts the other with a net. Micah feels alone. He is the only one interested in truth. He is the only one interested in righteousness. He's the only one interested in the things of God. He feels like he is the lone voice in a sea of opposition. The people are evil. It says the prince and the judge ask for a bribe. Those who are in charge, completely corrupt. We've seen it over and over in the Minor Prophets. We've seen it in Micah. The ones who are in power are using their power to oppress and take advantage of the people. They're Rather than feeding and tending the sheep that God had entrusted to them, they're, they're devouring them. But it's not just limited to the rich and the powerful. Look down at verse 5. It says, put no trust in a neighbor. Have no confidence in a friend. Guard the doors of your mouth from her who lies in your arms. Don't trust your neighbor. They'll take advantage of you. And it gets a little bit closer than that, doesn't he? Not only don't trust your neighbor, but have no confidence in a friend people that you're supposed to be able to trust, but it actually draws the circle even tighter than that. Guard the doors of your mouth from her who lies on your arms. Be careful what you say to your wife because she's just as treacherous as the other people. Can, Can you picture the isolation? That is what this is. 
drawing concentric circles of the people that I'm supposed to be able to trust and saying, I can't trust any of them. None of them are trustworthy. Things are so bad that you can't even trust the people closest to you. Now, can you imagine that scenario? Can you imagine feeling absolutely alone in your, in your obedience? Many of us can. And that brings real despair. Woe is me, for I am utterly alone in this thing that I'm working through. The question is not whether that circumstance is real or whether that circumstance is painful. The question is, what do you do when that is the case? The question is, what do God's people do when they are completely rejected and alone in their pursuit of righteousness and obedience. What does God call a worshipful response? See, that's where theology meets everyday life. Because once again, the world has answers. The world says one of two things, one of two extremes. On the one hand, if you are alone in your desire, in your job, in your school, in your marriage, if you are alone, then on the one hand, it will tell you to flee from that. That circumstance is painful. It is not fair. You have the right to remove yourself from that. And the world will tell you to protect yourself. Or, on the other hand, the world will tell you that perhaps it's you who has the problem. And if you're the only one who's not doing X, Y, or Z, then maybe you need to move to be more like the culture. Maybe you need to not be so rigid. Maybe you need to not be so strict. Maybe you need to not be so closed-minded. Maybe it's you who needs to not be so bigoted. How many of us have heard that word? That is the best that the world can do. When trouble comes, when isolation comes, either flee from it or conform to it. Now let's not pretend that those aren't tempting options because I don't know about you, but I don't enjoy pain and isolation. I don't enjoy or thrive on loneliness. And it is easier to shut myself off so that I don't get hurt or to just be like everyone else so at least I seem like I'm part of the crowd. the question that we have to ask and answer is what does God call us to do? What does worship look like in this circumstance? Look at verse 7. But as for me, I will look to the Lord. The heart of Micah's answer is let the world go its way. Let them hate me. Let them isolate me. Let them abandon the God who called them. As for me, I will watch, I will wait, I will look to the Lord. I'm not going to look for peace in the world. I'm not going to look for strength in the world's systems. I'm not going to look for validation from the world's leaders. I'm not going to look for my identity in conforming to the world's ideas. I'll look to the Lord because he will be my identity. I will look to Yahweh because he will be my strength. I will look to the Lord because he will be my wisdom. He says, I will wait for the God of my salvation. Micah commits to wait for the Lord. How long? How patient are you? How long are you willing to wait for the Lord to move in your circumstance? Look, I'm a pastor, and I am hopelessly impatient so often. Because I can convince myself that if God really cared, he would have done something about this yesterday. 
What does Micah say? As for me, I'm going to wait. And I'm going to wait in hope for the Lord. And whether I wait for an hour, a day, or years, I can wait with confidence. I will wait for the God of my salvation. My God will hear me. See, just because I suffer doesn't mean that God is ignorant. Just because I feel alone doesn't mean that I am alone. If I look wildly different from the world around me, if I am completely rejected by the people closest to me, then none of that changes who I really am. My God will hear me. See, you didn't see the word sovereignty in there, but Micah's response here is completely driven by God's sovereignty. He is utterly convinced, persuaded beyond a shadow of a doubt that God is not absent from this circumstance. That he might very well be the only one alone in Israel, we know that he's not, but that he alone has a righteous response to God. And yet God says he is not alone, not for a moment. He might be completely rejected, cast out, hated, even killed by those who oppose him and his message. And God says that he is not rejected. He belongs to him. It might be very easy to say, well, God is obviously not listening. How many years are you going to say the same thing? And he's confident in the sovereignty of God that hears every prayer of his people. See, the world is corrupt and God is not phased. God's people are abandoned and rejected, but theology says that they're never alone. The circumstance is beyond his ability to change or control, but a right theology says God is still perfectly in sovereign control and that he is absolutely able to work his good and perfect will in any and every circumstance for the salvation of his people. That is what Micah is looking for. Not ease, not comfort, but I wait for God, my salvation. My God will hear me. See, the prophet living in trying times feels the weight of sin and opposition, uh, but in his distress, he calls to mind what he knows to be true about God. And as we move forward in chapter 7, what we're going to see is not only that God is sovereign, but that God is just. It's funny, a number of you looked right there. Because that's where the banner is, right there. That's a good thing, by the way. (laughs) See, the justice of God is a comfort to his people. And get this, the justice of God is a comfort to his people even when it calls to mind their own sin. And as we come to verse 8, we're going to look at the next trouble. The next aspect of kind of suffering that he has to endure. Look at verse 8. Rejoice not over me, my enemy. When I fall, I shall rise. When I sit in darkness, the Lord will be a light to me. Did you catch it? Don't rejoice over me, my enemy. He's sitting in a place where the enemies are not only opposed to him, but where they're rejoicing in his suffering and in his failure. Those who strive to live for God, those who have predetermined that they will be obedient to God no matter what the circumstance, will find themselves at opposition and enmity with a fallen world. Didn't Jesus say the same thing? If you are a friend of mine, you will be an enemy of the world. That if they hate me, they will certainly hate you. That's not New Testament new. That is always the truth of God's word, that a people who strive to live in obedience and worship will find themselves at odds with a sinful and fallen culture around them. And so often when God's people go through difficulty, those who oppose God turn their opposition and hatred firmly against his people. I remember back in Mrs. Block's science class in middle school. It was called junior high back then. 
and I had done poorly on a test. It was not because I was righteous. It was because I didn't study. Let's be abundantly clear. But one of the things that I still remember is Jeremy, the kid who sat next to me, knew that I didn't do well on the test, and he said, whoa, Matt Round didn't even do well. And for some reason, that stuck with me because my enemy rejoiced in my failure. That's a tiny little example, but we've all come to the place where those who are in opposition to us rejoice in our failures. When they delight to see God's people humiliated and fallen down. But there's actually another problem here. There's another trouble that Micah has to deal with. Let's go on. Look at verse 9. I will bear the indignation of the Lord because I have sinned against him. Let's not read over that too quickly. There's a very real problem here, and that's that's that God's people will live with God's discipline. That's a hard thing because God is holy. God deals with sin. What have we seen over and over in the minor prophets? God will deal with the sins of the nations. That God will deal fully and finally with the sins of those who hate him, those who oppose him, and those who reject him. But what have we seen even more frequently? That God will deal with the sins of his people. That was true for Israel and Judah, and guess what? It is still abundantly true today. God cannot be less than he is. And in his holiness and in his perfection, he can't ignore rebellion. And in this really, I think it's pretty beautiful and honest, the prophet himself identifies his own sin and with the sins of his people. I will bear the indignation, the righteous anger of God, because I've sinned. See, and the thing is, he knows what that'll look like. Hasn't he been really specific on what the judgment of God is going to look like? Micah knows that even as he says that, I will bear the indignation of God that leads to utter poverty for my people. I'll bear the indignation of God that leads to military defeat. I'm going to bear the indignation of God that leads to a removal and an exile from the land. And all of that is right and just because of sin. And he doesn't make excuses. He doesn't try to minimize it. He doesn't try to distance himself from this wicked generation that he lives in. He humbly recognizes that God will judge and that God is just when he judges. And if you don't see that as a problem, then you've never undergone the discipline of God. How many of us have at one time or another felt that crushing weight of God's hand against his people as he corrects them in their sin? But what's the truth that drives the response to that? Because discipline is hard. My mom and dad are here today. It's not a coincidence. God is sovereign in everything. But I don't remember particularly enjoying being disciplined. And I was a child that needed discipline. But what's, what's the truth, the theological reality that drives a right response even to God's discipline? Look at what he says in the second half of the verse. I will bear the indignation of the Lord because I have sinned against him. But what's the next word in your Bible? You can talk out loud. Until. Do you want to know the truth that gives hope in the middle of justice? You want to know the truth that gives hope even in the middle of when God is pressing you because of your sin? It's that word, until. Because until cannot mean forever. Understand that the judgment and the justice of God poured out on his people in discipline is not his final word. 
And the prophet, in confidence, says, I am going to bear the weight of my sin, the correction for my sin, but only until. Because God does not discipline his people to destruction. I'll bear the indignation of the Lord, but it won't be forever. I'll bear the indignation of the Lord until he pleads my cause and executes judgment for me. He will bring me out to the light. I'll look upon his vindication. That is such a sweet sentence because Micah recognizes that the solution to his sin problem, uh, the solution to Israel's sin problem, the solution by extension to our sin problem, is not to work harder and to be better, to offer more sacrifices, to vindicate ourselves. It's not to minimalize and rationalize and kind of psychologize our failure. It's to understand that God is just when he judges. But that same God who is just when he judges is the only one who can provide vindication for the sins of his people. Does that twist your mind up at all? Because it should. The God who demands payments for sin is the only one who can provide the vindicating payment for the sins of his people. How? How is that even possible that God can be both just and merciful? We know because we have this wonderful 2020 theological hindsight where we can see the work of Christ on the cross. It's what Paul writes about in Romans 3.23. For there is no distinction for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We know that verse, but he goes on to say, and they are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Jesus Christ whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood. Propitiation, uh, anger taker aware. Theology, great kid's book. Get it, whether you're whatever age. Wonderful. God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. And this was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that, get this, God might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. See, it is possible for God to be just and justifier because God is just and he demands that sin costs a life, that sin demands blood, that sin kills and it always kills, but he is the justifier and that he said, this will take the place of my people. This being his one and only beloved son, Jesus Christ. That sacrifice of Christ satisfies the righteous wrath of God against sin. And so Christ takes on our sin and we take on his righteousness, not ours. We are not presented as a slightly cleaned up version of ourselves. We are not presented as a day one fresh start version of ourselves. We are presented with the perfect righteousness of Christ in the eyes of God. How long could that possibly be good for? Hebrews chapter 7, verse 23. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he, that is Jesus, holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him. Why? Since he always lives to make intercession for them. Your advocate and my advocate before God the Father is the same one who provided his blood to stand in our place, and he lives forever to plead our case. How can God be just and justifier because his son paid the price? How long is that verdict good for forever because his son lives forever? When will God plead the case of his people? Christ is the answer. But back to Micah 7. This passage is amazing because it doesn't just talk about the vindication of God for his people. That would be enough. 
that for God to move in mercy and justice on behalf of his people would be enough. But he also reminds us that God is the God of the nations. That one day, God will balance all accounts. Verse 10, then my enemy will see. When God vindicates his people, Micah says, then my enemy will see, and shame will cover her who said to me, where is the Lord your God? My eyes will look upon her, and now she will be trampled down like the mire of the streets. See, those who stood in pride and defiance, those ones who mocked Micah, the theology that grounds him and his response to that is the knowledge that one day all of those who oppose God will come be confronted and come face to face with the power of the God that they mocked, and they will fall on their face before a power that they cannot even comprehend. God will vindicate himself and his people among the nations. Verse 10, the enemy will see. Verse 11, a day for building the building of your walls. And in that day, the boundary will be far extended. In that day, they will come to you from Assyria and the cities of Egypt and from Egypt to the river, from sea to sea, mountain to mountain. But the earth will be desolate because of the inhabitants for the fruit of their deeds. See, there is a day coming when the justice of God is poured out against the nations. We read in Peter this morning that justice, that judgment begins in the household of God and praise God that it does as he refines us. But God will deal with the sins of the nations. It's that long-term kind of end-time reckoning that the minor prophets so often speak to. He talks about Egypt and Assyria, those nations that are constantly pictured as enemies of God and enemies of his people. But there's going to come a time when they have to recognize the power of God. Right now, as Micah writes, Israel and Judah are going to be left barren. But there's a time coming, he says, when the world will be made barren because of their sin. But why does that matter? Why does the theology of the justice of God matter to a suffering people? Well, first of all, because it means that we are free to rest in the justice of God. Do you realize that the justice of God is an incredibly freeing thing for his people? Why? Because the justice of God tells you and me that my sin has been completely dealt with. That although I likely won't make it through this day without a failure, I can say that pretty confidently, that that doesn't jeopardize my eternity because God is just. And because in his perfect justice, he poured out the wholeness and the totality of his wrath on the Son and not on me. And so I am free to live in light of his goodness, even as I recognize his justice. And it also means that I'm free from worrying about the unjust, just unthinkable circumstances around me. How do you make this world make sense? Bring all the evidence to bear in a court that shows that this person is guilty, and at best it seems like a coin flip as to whether they get convicted or not. Crooked politicians, crooked authorities, corrupt people everywhere we look. How do you make sense of a world like that and live with any sense of peace? The only answer is in entrusting yourself to a God who is perfectly just and who does not leave the scales unbalanced. It frees me up from looking for any kind of vindication on my own, any kind of revenge on my own. Why? Because vengeance is mine, says the Lord, and he will do it infinitely better than I can. And it means that when I suffer... Even when I suffer unjustly, I can continually entrust myself to God who is always faithful. By the way, that's exactly what Christ modeled in 1 Peter chapter 2. 
I will never suffer as unfairly as Christ did. Neither will you. No matter how unjust your circumstances are, you will never be treated as poorly, as unfairly, as unjustly as the perfect holy Son of God was as he marched to that cross to die for your sin and for mine. And what was his response? He continually entrusted himself to the God who judges faithfully. See, theology matters, folks, because we're going to suffer. And sometimes that suffering is going to be everything that you deserve. And sometimes it's going to be nothing that you deserve. And God remains the same through all of it. See, it's more than those banners behind me. Because God is sovereign, I can trust that he will work out his plan. Because God is just, I can trust that he will deal with sin. And finally, what we're going to see is that the Lord is merciful. The prophets work through hardship. He's worshipped in the middle of crisis. But there's a problem if you're paying attention. That is that the problem that the prophet is still in crisis. See, Micah doesn't cry out, woe is me. Come to these great theological conclusions. And God said, great, you got it. Beam him right to heaven. If that's in your Bible, change Bibles. God does not suddenly, radically change the hearts of the people in this context. At the end of Micah 7, we do not read that all Israel came and fell on their face before the house of the Lord and repented in sackcloth and ashes. We know that there is reform under Hezekiah. We also know that in 586, Babylon crushes a rebellious Judah and wipes out Israel. Micah might come to every right conclusion, but he still lives in a desperate and difficult time. But Micah closes by highlighting the mercy of God that promises restoration for his people. And he starts off by giving a picture of restoration. Look at verse 14. Shepherd your people with your staff, the flock of your inheritance who dwell alone in a forest in the midst of a garden land. Let them graze in Bashan and Gilead as in the days of old. What's happening right now as Micah writes? What's the context of Israel? They're prospering, but they're going to come to ruin. Uh, They are going to be scattered. They're going to know disobedience. They're going to not know any rest. They're going to know no provision. They're going to know hunger and need. And Micah points forward to a time when that is all going to be reversed, when they're going to be gathered and when they're going to be cared for, when the Lord will be their shepherd. Shepherding has come up so often again in the minor prophets, the failed shepherds of Israel, the prophets who failed, the priests who failed, the kings who failed, those people who were supposed to shepherd and gather and care for and feed and love, utter failures. And over and over what the minor prophets do is they point to the coming good shepherd, the one who will faithfully and rightly shepherd his people. And then he does something really interesting. He points forward by pointing backwards. Verse 15, as in the days when you came out of the land of Egypt, I will show them marvelous things. Once again, and I hope you're highlighting these things in your Bible, the theme of Exodus that comes up over and over in the minor prophets, and they always use it the same way. The minor prophets talk about the Exodus that was, and they use it to point to an Exodus that yet will be. An exiled and foreign and lost people, alone among the nations, gathered together and brought into rest. And what does Micah know is coming? Destruction, desolation, and scattering. And he talks to a time when there is going to be a shepherding, a regathering of God as he plants and secures his people. And when he does, he says, the nations will see and be ashamed of all their might. 
They shall lay their hands on their mouths. Their ears shall be deaf. They shall lick the dust like a serpent, like the crawling things of the earth. They shall come trembling out of their strongholds. They shall turn in dread to the Lord our God, and they shall be in fear of you. How have the nations been pictured so far in Micah? The nations are the ones that are strong. The nations are the ones that are powerful. The nations are the ones that are going to come in and overcome and oppress God's people. But there's a time coming when not only will be Israel be gathered and shepherded, but when the nations will be brought low and destroyed, when the ones who are mocking will be silent, when the ones who rejected God will be forced to turn to the Lord in fear of his awesome power. The weak made strong, the scattered gathered, the ones who are desperate and in need are now provided for in plenty. It's this picture of restoration that is going to come. But as wonderful as that picture of restoration is, as beautiful as the promise of physical restoration is, uh, that is not the greatest demonstration of God's power. See, what Micah closes with, what brings him to kind of the pinnacle of worship for the whole book is the power behind that restoration. And I'm not talking about the physical restoration. It's the power of God that restores and redeems his people to their very souls. Verse 18, who is a God like you? That is the question that ought to be ringing in your ears as you walk out the door today and move through the rest of your week. Who is like the Lord? By the way, that is exactly what Micah's name means. Who is like Yahweh? Who is a God like you? Pardoning iniquity and passing over transgression for the remnant of his inheritance. What would we think would go there? Who is a God like you who can raise up and destroy nations? What other God can do that? No one. But that's not what he highlights. He says, who is a God like you? Not who can build up and destroy. Not even who could create the universe around us. But who is a God like you who would pardon iniquity and pass over the transgressions of the remnant of his inheritance? What other God would show this kind of mercy to his people? You've all had some level of schooling. Think about what you know about the Greek and the Roman gods. Are they like this? Think about what you know of the gods of the pantheon of Hinduism. Think about what you know of the gods of Egypt. Are they like this? No. The man-made, idolatrous worship of the nations always makes gods that are like us. And all of those gods are finite, they are fickle, they are mean, they are vengeful, they hold grudges. Think about it. Who is a god like Yahweh? The answer is no one. What did God's people do? All he did was make covenant promises to them, call them out of Egypt, make them a nation, provide for them miraculously, and plant them in a land. And what did they do? grumbled and complained day three on the road, turned their back on him at every step of the way, pursued the idols of the nations around him, trusted in their own walls, their own chariots, their own armies, and when that didn't work, they trusted in the armies and the chariots of the nations around them. Over and over, they proved failures. Over and over, they proved to be spiritually idolatrous and adulterous, and what does God do? He pardons them. God in his mercy shows a willingness to overlook and to pass over the sins of his people. So you don't read over that too quickly. Who is a God like you pardoning iniquity and passing over the transgression for the remnant of his people? Do you suppose that that term passing over would land a little differently to his people? What was the Passover? Even kids, you guys know that story. What happened during that first Passover? They took a lamb. 
And that lamb died. And they put the blood of the lamb on the door and on the posts of the door. And as God came, he passed over those houses. Was it because the people inside were inherently good? Was it because they were less wicked, less rebellious than even their Egyptian neighbors? And the answer is no. But God in his mercy said that the blood of the lamb would stand in the place of his people. God's people, from the very beginning of their existence as a nation, had been prepared to understand that something had to stand in their place. Which is why Paul says that Christ is our Passover lamb when he writes to the Corinthians. And Micah goes on, He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in steadfast love. It is not that God doesn't get angry. God is righteously angry at sin, and understand this, at sinners. We don't want to tell anybody that God is mad at them. Tell that to Israel. God was angry with his sinful people. You read through Psalm 5, God abhors, he hates sins and those who commit them and stand against him. God is righteously angry against sin. Do not neuter the holiness of God by pretending that he does not get angry. What's the distinction? That his anger isn't done away with, but that his anger is satisfied by his steadfast love, that covenant-keeping, always faithful love. And God delights in that steadfast love. And because Micah knows what God is like, Micah can say then with absolute confidence that he will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. He will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. You will show faithfulness to Jacob and steadfast love to Abraham as you have sworn to our fathers from the days of old. He can say, this is where the theology matters, right? This is where the theology gets put to the test. Even in the midst of corruption, even in the midst of suffering, even in the midst of uh, horrible, hopeless-looking circumstances, he can look to the future and he say, I know that God will. I know that God will make his compassion ultimately rest on his people. I know that God will ultimately take my sins and my failures and he will trample them under his feet. I know that he will take my sins and he'll separate them from me, as it were, and cast them into the deepest, darkest part of the ocean. Why? Because he's faithful. Because God made promises to Abraham, and they weren't like the promises made at the foot of Sinai as he gave the covenant of the law. What did the law say? If you, I will. What did Leviticus 26 say? If you obey, you will know nothing but blessing and peace and provision and plenty. But if you disobey, you will know nothing but hardship and curses. You realize the covenant that he made with Abraham is not like that. To Abraham he said, I will no if. I will give you a land, you and your descendants, as an eternal possession. I will give you seed like the stars in the sky and the sand on the seashore. I will bless those who bless you and curse those who curse you. And somehow in you, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. Why does theology matter? Because if you put yourself in Micah's time, 
How far away must those promises have felt? Let's leave Micah in the past and think to the last time that you were in distress, that your soul cried out to the Lord. How far away did those promises feel? They might be as close as the scripture in front of your face, but they feel light years away, don't they? And yet theology tells us that God is faithful even when I cannot see how that could be so. When the hopeless situation is the only thing I can see, when it's the only reality that I can even imagine, theology reminds me that God is not like me. I'm fallen, I'm failed, I am faithless so often, but God is not. Who is like the Lord who forgives and restores? Who is like the Lord who remembers his every promise? Who is like the Lord who redeems his people? What a great end to this little book. Now, of course, it comes with problems and promises of its own. See, there's a risk in preaching things like this because there's a very real chance that we come across or I come across as callous or uncaring or completely ignorant. You have no idea what I've gone through. You have no idea what I'm going through. And to an extent, of course, that's true. I'm not in any of your places. But I am a part of this human experience. I've worked through the other side of injustice, and more than that, I've felt the weight of my own failure. I've walked through hopelessness. There's times when you balance the weight of life and the longing for the release from that. It, it's not a competition about who's endured the most darkness. It's not a matter of coming to a text like this and saying, that sounds good and it sounds true, but my circumstance is somehow beyond that. And it's not minimizing it to say that you don't face anything new. That when God's word says there's nothing under the sun, it means it. That your experience isn't outside of all of those in human history. There's actually blessed comfort in saying that God knows and that this speaks to that. Not only does God's word speak to it, but the truth in here is actually sufficient to move you through this. And that's good news because God has actually made specific promises in light of that. See, the fact that my circumstance isn't wholly unique in all of human history means that I can find the same hope that Micah did. I can find the same encouragement and commands to obey that Micah did, and I can find the same promises that he did. So here's three things for us to think about as we get ready to head out today. First of all, responding to hardship. Understand this. What we are looking for is not a people who never say, woe is me. This is not a place where we pretend that everything feels good all of the time. Micah was faithful, and he said, woe is me. David was a faithful man, and he cried out, how long, O Lord? The goal is not to get to the place where we are theological robots who never acknowledge pain or suffering or guilt or displeasure or any of those things. The point 
And the purpose is to get to the place where the gap between woe is me and yet I will wait shrinks, right? To acknowledge that deep pain and then to train myself to respond rightly rather than to be pulled into those pits and cycles of despair. See, because the wonderful thing is that God promises to work in that. Responding to hardship requires us to understand something of God's sovereignty because in understanding God's sovereignty, it means that there's not only someone who knows my circumstance, but there's someone who has a great purpose for my circumstance. And he didn't leave us in the dark on that. I might not know your particular suffering as far as the detail, but I can tell you without a shadow of a doubt what God is doing in the middle of that. Did you know that? I can tell you God's purpose for your suffering Maybe not this specific thing, but I can tell you that God's will is your sanctification. Because that's what Paul says. I can tell you that because Paul says in Romans 8 that he works all things according to the good of those who love him, he's actually told us what that good looks like, and that is in that he will conform us to the image of his beloved son. See, your suffering is not without purpose. Your suffering is designed to make you more like him. And as often as we are willing to orient ourselves toward that agenda and not our own, then we find the strength to take the next step. See, that as often as I make sure that my goal is the same as God's goal, then God promises to sustain me until he completes that goal. And so the task for us is not to fix the circumstance, fix the people, or avoid the pain. The task for us is to identify the lies that are happening around us that say that God doesn't know, the lies that say that God doesn't care, the lies that say that you could have done this better, the lies that say the best thing for you is to hunker down and just get through it. And we recognize the truth that no, God is intimately and infinitely in this circumstance, and he is using every bit of it to make me more like him. And that's a purpose that will not be thwarted. Not by death or life or angels or principalities, things present, things to come, powers, height, depth, anything, anything in this whole creation, nothing can separate me from the love of God, and therefore nothing can separate me from the completion of his divine purposes in me. Second thing, responding to our discipline. Sometimes hopelessness doesn't come from somewhere out there. Sometimes hopelessness comes from the fact that I fall short and I know it. The most difficult things for me to deal with personally are not the external things that I have no control over. It is knowing that I could have and should have done better. That every week I work through this Bible and I strive to bring through what it says accurately and every week it comes up against me that I don't do it. That I can't. That I fall short and that when I do, it hurts my kids, it hurts my wife, it hurts you as a congregation. And so often I fall into this pit of wondering, why, God, did you not simply make me better so that I stop hurting people? What's the problem with that? It's infinitely and only focused on me. Guys, sometimes the weight of God's hand and discipline is heavy. That's why the author of Hebrews says, bear up under that because God scourges, maybe not the word I would have chosen, but that God scourges every son that he loves. You realize that as often as you feel the heavy weight of God's discipline on your life, it is a reminder that he cares enough about you to discipline you back toward obedience. And we get 
into this thing that says no reasonable person could ever overlook what I've done. No reasonable person would ever have a relationship with someone like me. Do you understand that if you fall into that category, you are not pleading your case before a reasonable person. You are coming before a holy, infinite, unthinkably merciful God who has taken our sin and separated it from us and thrown it and cast it into the depths of the sea, never to be remembered against us again. See, we know that if we are faithful, that if we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sin and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And my gentle encouragement would be that some of you walk through difficulty. Some of your lives are difficult because you continue to push back against the discipline. God's hand can be heavy on his children, but his desire is never for destruction. It's always for restoration. And finally, when you think about failure, faithfulness in the future, uh, I hate failing. I hate disappointing people. I do. The problem is, I tend to look at my failure in very short-sighted human terms. And not in the sense that when I fail, God exposes these things in me and uses them to make me more like his son, which ultimately points to a great future where I'll be holy like the son, complete, standing before him, fit to worship. See, Israel and Judah failed utterly and completely. And yet, what does God say of his people? Their sins, although they are without number, can't overcome his grace. Because he delights in steadfast love. Do you love that picture of God taking your sin and stamping it out under his feet? I do. Do you love that picture of God taking your sin, that failure that the Bible doesn't ignore, that wickedness, that darkness, that stain that is real and has consequence, but God removing that from you and casting it, as it were, into the bottom of the Mariana's Trench, never to be seen again? What an awesome, beautiful God we serve that would forgive people like us. I hope your theology matters to you. I hope my theology matters to me more than studying for a Sunday.